Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, delivering what will be our final rant of the year 2022 in the wee hours of December 29th. As always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And uh, some listeners may be aware that for 20 years, I co-produced a radio show, I mean a real radio show, not a podcast, on WBAI here in New York City called the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade, for reasons which uh, perhaps we'll explain next week. But the uh, founder and central personality of which was the notorious and sometimes controversial underground intellectual and anarchist icon, Peter Lamborn Wilson, who left his mortal coil on May 23rd of this year. Now, um, I'd been out of touch with Peter for the past 10 years or so of his life, and I recently called him again, just a few weeks before his passing, because some research I was doing for the podcast touched on one of his rather obscure, or, to use a key word in the discussion to follow tonight, esoteric areas of expertise. And we had a nice little conversation, and I'm really glad that I did, because he died unexpectedly just about a month later. So I'm saddened by his passing, but very happy that we reconnected one last time, if only by telephone. And I just received in the mail a copy of what I believe is Peter Lamborn Wilson's last book, which actually touches on another area of recent research for the Counter Vortex blog and podcast. And this book is Peacock Angel, the Esoteric Tradition of the Yazidis, published this year, 2022, by Inner Traditions in Rochester, Vermont. Now, followers of the Counter Vortex podcast and blog will uh, already be aware of the Yazidis as they are variously rendered. Either Yazidis, the more traditional rendering, Y-A-Z-I-D-I-S, or the more contemporary Yezidis, the rendering used by Peter, Y-E-Z, or um, increasingly merely the Ezidis, dropping the Y entirely, E-Z-I-D-I-S. And uh, close followers of the contemporary Kurdish revolutionary struggle will also be aware of the Yazidis an ethnicity defined by their very unique religious belief and spiritual practice. They are mostly Kurdish-speaking, although some also speak Arabic, and their heartland largely overlaps with that of the Kurds, straddling eastern Turkey and northern Iraq. They have traditionally been derided by their Muslim neighbors as devil worshippers, although it is more accurate to say that they revere angels. As discussed by the famous Greek-Armenian mystic 
G.I. Gurdjieff in his autobiographical Meetings with Remarkable Men, an account of his travels as a spiritual seeker across the Caucasus and Middle East, originally published in Russian in the 1920s, and now widely available in translation, and made into a pretty good movie in 1979, in which the Yazidis are briefly depicted. Because of the devil-worship calumny, the Yazidis have been periodically persecuted over the centuries by various Muslim rulers, most recently ISIS, who seized their territory in northern Iraq in August 2014, and the inhabitants were either massacred or, in the case of the women, reduced to actual chattel slavery. But the Yazidis armed and launched a resistance struggle, and with the help of allied Kurdish forces, in November 2015 drove out ISIS and recovered their territory and established an autonomous zone of their own called Ezidikan, centered on their principal town of Sinjar, or Shingal, as it is sometimes rendered, which is now protected by its own Yazidi self-defense force called the Sinjar Resistance Units, YBS, which also has an all-female wing, the Ezidikan Women's Units, or YJS, and playing a key role in the liberation of Sinjar in 2015 were both the newly formed YBS as well as fighters from the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which has been intermittently waging an insurgency against the Turkish state since the 1980s and also have a presence in northern Iraq. And this was the beginning of the Yazidi leadership and their new autonomous zone of Ezidikan coming into the political orbit of the PKK, a very interesting development. And the PKK and other Kurdish revolutionary organizations in their orbit follow a radical left ideology that has, for the past decade and change, been moving away from Stalinism and in a more interesting direction, explicitly feminist as well as militantly secular, and most interestingly, influenced by anarchism, while they definitely continue to have a personality cult around their imprisoned leader, Abdullah Ocalan, but they have, in the territories they control, most notably in the Rojava region of northeast Syria, where revolutionary Kurds have actually taken power, instated a model of decentralized decision-making, with power flowing up from below, from councils at the municipal and even neighborhood level, rather than being imposed from above under the Leninist precepts of democratic centralism, which is certainly more centralist than democratic. Now, it's very hard to get updates about the situation in Ezidikan. This is definitely an underreported conflict, but the last update we did in our podcast of June 11th We reported the very unhappy news that the Iraqi armed forces and the Peshmerga, the Iraqi Kurdish militia, 
Under pressure from Turkey, which has been intermittently carrying out airstrikes in the area, had launched an offensive to take Sinjar and extinguish the Azidikan Autonomous Zone. And Sinjar, which had been resisting ISIS in 2015, is now resisting Iraqi government forces and the Peshmerga. A very, very bitter irony. Okay, so uh, what do we know about the Yazidis? Here is where we get into the esoteric and the material explored in Peter's book. The Yazidis are often conflated with the Gnostics, but this is apparently not quite right. There is actually another micro-ethnicity in Iraq, the Mandaeans, who have a smaller community of just a couple of thousands around Baghdad, who are true Gnostics, believed to be the last surviving indigenous Gnostic group in the Middle East, and the last original or authentic Gnostics, so to speak, in the world. And then there is another strain related to Gnosticism, but not actually Gnostic in the older tradition of the Zoroastrians and Manichaeans, founded by the prophets Zoroaster and Mani, respectively, centuries before the Common Era, as we reckon it today, starting with the birth of Jesus. The Manichaeans, I believe, have completely disappeared from history, but the Zoroastrians are still very much around, tolerated, at least, in their traditional heartland of Iran, and also with a thriving community in India. Now, the difference between these two traditions is that the latter and older, the Zoroastrians and Manichaeans, are dualists. The two opposed divine entities of the Zoroastrians, the benevolent Ahura Mazda and the evil Ariman, are seen as equals. Neither is a supreme being, perhaps a kind of dark view of the world, Whereas the Gnostics took a perhaps even darker view, they believed, or believe, that the earth and the material world were created by and are under the rule of an evil demiurge, a kind of malevolent cosmic architect, and are therefore beyond redemption. But that beyond the material world, there really is a benevolent God that we each have a divine spark of within us, and who we can hope to merge with after death by being pious in life. So, echoes of the Judeo-Christian Satan or Lucifer, but they believe that the material world isn't just fallen, but the actual creation of an evil being rather than a benevolent god. And the Yazidis appear to have belonged, or belong, to neither of these great traditions exactly, but seem to believe that, yeah, the world is ruled by a fallen angel, but one that is not inherently evil, like Satan or Ariman, but who can be redeemed, and the world along with him, and perhaps will be one day. And this is the Peacock Angel Melek Taus in the Kurdish language, though I believe Melek 
is borrowed from the Semitic languages and probably related to Malik, or king in Arabic and Hebrew. Melek Taus is also referred to by the honorific Lord of This World. Now, the origins of this tradition are popularly attributed to a 12th century Arab mystic, Sheikh Adi Musafir, who was associated with the Adawiya Sufi order, whose founding saint was actually a woman, Rabia of Basra, or Rabia al Adawiya, who lived some 400 years earlier. Sheikh Adi is said to have given the Yazidis to books of revelation, but all original copies of these are believed to have been lost, and the surviving translations are of questionable provenance. And the Yazidi lore and history are largely kept alive via oral tradition under the direction of an hereditary priest ruler said to be Sheikh Adi's successor, the Bab el Sheikh. I'll interject that I'm uncertain whether um, this position survives under the contemporary autonomous zone of Azidi Khan. The two texts, basically collections of hymns, the somewhat questionable translations of which Peter quotes at length, are the A Black Book, or Meshaf Resh, and Al Jilwa, or The Revelation. But uh, Peter Lamborn Wilson is arguing that Sheikh Adi didn't invent the religion. He merely codified it, so to speak, providing text for what had, up to that time, been a strictly oral tradition. And he emphasizes that despite these books, Yazidism not only remains a largely oral tradition, but there's actually something of a suspicion of literacy and the written word among the Yazidis and the fundamentals of their spirituality have been passed on across the centuries through a more organic cultural process. And the principal role of Sheikh Adi, in Peter's view, was to portray the divine beings of Yazidi tradition as angels, so they would be minimally acceptable in the Islamic tradition, to place them in a permissible Islamic context. He particularly argues that for the Adawiya, the Islamic fallen angel Iblis, associated with the Christian Lucifer, became the new or alternative or masqueraded identity of Melek Taos. And he further argues that the angelic beings of the Yazidis, like the jinn of Islamic tradition, or genies, as they are popularly rendered in the West, are a surviving remnant of a pre-Islamic, and in fact pre-Gnostic, so-called pagan tradition, and that the deepest roots of the Yazidi religion predate not only Sheikh Adi and the Adawiya, but also Islam, Christianity, Gnosticism, and even Zoroastrianism and that the angels of Yazidi cosmology are actually a survival of the ancient Indo-European gods, related, if distantly, 
to those we know from the Greco-Roman, Norse, and Vedic pantheons. And uh, a brief aside, just because I can't resist, this is not in Peter's book, this is just me, but the Yazidis probably had some unrecognized influence on Western popular culture through having come to the attention of the Golden Dawn, the esoteric order founded in Britain a century and change ago, concerned with ritual magic and such, which seemed to have looked to the Yazidis as a kind of predecessor in perhaps ersatz fashion, and who would themselves become an important precursor to contemporary neo-paganism. And among their prominent members was the poet William Butler Yeats, as well as Aleister Crowley, who would later found his own rather controversial occult secret society, the Ordo Templi Orientis, O-T-O, although really no longer quite so secret, as Crowley has become something of a worldwide cult figure. Even Ozzy Osbourne has a song about him. And finally, another Golden Dawn member was Charles Williams, who would later become a member of the Inklings, the literary circle at Oxford University, along with J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and wrote his own works of fantastic literature of an apparently very mystical bent that I haven't read but intend to crack one day. Okay, back to the history of the Yazidis. It is a point of some controversy whether they take their name from Caliph Yazid, the sixth Caliph of Islam, and the second of the Umayyad dynasty that ruled from Damascus for some 100 years, beginning approximately 660 Common Era, before it was superseded by the Abbasid Caliphate that ruled from Baghdad, Caliph Yazid does appear to have tolerated and protected the followers of the Peacock Angel, and even formed a military alliance with them against rebels in their region. By some accounts, the Yazidis consider Caliph Yazid, like Sheikh Adi, to have been an avatar or incarnation of the Peacock Angel. And by some accounts, Caliph Yazid actually was secretly a Yazidi. Of course, as we can imagine, this is very controversial, but uh, Peter Lamborn Wilson has a whole chapter discussing and quoting from the poetry attributed to, at least, Caliph Yazid, in which he apparently wrote about drinking wine and the pleasures of the flesh, which is taken in defense of the notion that he was a crypto-Yazidi. Peter Wilson embraces the word pagan, which many scholars frown on today, and sees the tenacious survival of Yazidism as an attempt at what he calls re-paganization in a part of the world where monotheism was hegemonic. In his view, the tradition was initially pagan, quote-unquote, then mixed up with Gnosticism, but heretical even among the Gnostics, syncretistic Gnosticism, so to speak, with much of the old paganism surviving now in Gnostic nomenclature, then as a kind of crypto-pagan Sufi order under the early Umayyads, and finally an explicit heresy after they were declared such under more orthodox and 
less tolerant Islamic rulers. And Peter's view of the presumed pagan connection holds that the Yazidis are indeed not only non-Islamic, but anti-Islamic. He almost portrays them as a conscious resistance movement against orthodoxy and authoritarianism and monotheism, for which they have paid in blood periodically over the centuries. As stated, the Yazidis were targeted for mass murder by Turkish authorities in the closing years of the Ottoman Empire during World War I, along with the Armenians, with several massacres documented a prelude a century earlier to what would befall them again at the hands of ISIS in our own times. And this ties into how Peter's views on Islam apparently hardened in the last decade of his life when I'd lost touch with him. Now, he was always most interested in the mystical and even heretical or antinomian strain of Islam in the Sufi tradition. But he had a general affinity for Islamic culture and the Islamic world. However, seemingly aghast at the rise of ISIS and like movements, and what he perceived as accommodation by the ulema, or establishment of Muslim scholars, of their underlying dogmas of Wahhabism and its more extreme variant Salafism, he appears to have changed his view. And uh, in the passage that I'm about to read, he also defends his use of the word esoteric, which, like pagan, is often considered problematic today, being inherently relative and normalizing or centering of the exoteric, or mainstream, if you will. Now, I must emphasize here, what I'm about to read is Peter's view, not my own. I think he's engaging in a degree of essentialism in these passages about both esoteric and exoteric Islam. But I will nonetheless just read from the text, with a little interjected annotation here and there, perhaps. From the introduction... Regretfully, I must limit my remarks about the current political situation of the Yazidis to a general statement of outrage on their behalf due to the continual Islamist persecution, murder, rape, enslavement, by elements such as ISIS. Fatwas against the Yazidis, issued by the Ottoman ulema in the 19th century, already advocated murder and enslavement of these unbelievers. Hyper-orthodoxies, such as Wahhabism or Salafism, may be distortions of orthodox Islam, but they do not violate historical programs. If moderate Islam today does not launch an effective critique of Salafism, perhaps this is from fear that the ugliest bigots are not misrepresenting the religion, but practicing it to the letter. Sufism and other heterodox forms of Islam appear to be precluded from making a robust resistance against Islamism because, as one Sufi sheikh put it, we believe in peace and love and not in violence or even militant self-defense. This constitutes 
in the classical sense, a true tragedy. As some of my readers will know, I have devoted decades of my life to the study of such heterodox forms. During this time, I have gone from a position of sympathy with Islam per se to a quite different view of the matter. I have waited in vain for a reasoned response from within mainstream Islam to the fundamentalist Puritanism infecting it. When I first fell in love with esoteric forms of Islam in Iran, Afghanistan, and India in the 1970s, it often seemed that Sufism was the dominant mode and that heterodoxies such as Ismailism, a minority current of Shia Islam, were the living limbs, so to speak, of the greater body of faith. In effect, what I liked were the impurities, quote-unquote, that are now being condemned and repressed from the fire-bombed Sufi shrines of Pakistan to the murdered mystics in Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Libya, and to the persecuted Druzes, wandering dervishes, Yazidis, and other minorities everywhere in Dar al-Islam, or the realm of Islam. The time has come to say, finally, that the exoteric religion itself must be to blame for these horrors. Therefore, the aspect of Yazidism that will chiefly concern me is its esoteric essence. In a sense, the religion can be interpreted as a pure form of esotericism, and moreover, an antinomian manifestation of the purely esoteric. Yazidism can be situated and understood in opposition to Islam, in opposition in italics, and its law. Also, it must be seen as both a pre-Islamic religion and a post-Islamic form of Sufism. End quote. And now I'm going to jump ahead to um, chapter 10, entitled Esoteric Antinomianism, where he begins by uh, briefly quoting from a book called the Sheref Nameh, or Book of Glory, sometimes also called the Chronicles of the Kurds, written in the 16th century by one Sharaf al-Din Khan Bedlisi, in which he writes of the Yazidis, quote, These Kurds have sworn hatred and the most implacable enmity against the virtuous sages of Islam, end quote. And Peter comments, quote, Allowing for the author's bias, these charges are simply true. The fascinating thing about Yazidism and from the Islamist point of view, the repugnant thing is that it began as a pagan sect, then became a Sufi order, then deviated into heresy, and ended in schism. It is not simply a non-Islamic religion, it is an anti-Islamic religion. It should be emphasized that Yazidism cannot be structurally compared with Satanism in the anti-Christian or anti-religious sense, because Yazidism does not view Melek Taos as a principle of evil, 
the Meshef Resh, makes it clear that he is only considered evil by outsiders. But it appears to be the case that he is beyond good and evil, because he rules this world without reference to the slave morality of monotheism, a reference there to Nietzsche. The world is good for those who see it in the light of Lucifer, a reference there to the esoteric Lucifer, the bringer of light, as the name implies, and the most beautiful of all the angels. Now, beyond good and evil does not mean to do evil. Nietzsche was firm about this, and only a fool of a Satanist would ignore it. The Yazidis are free of what Nietzsche called the moralic acid. In fact, Yazidi praxis is based on purity and decent behavior to discover their inner esoteric antinomianism. We must perform a hermeneutic unfolding of their text. We must trace them to their source. In doing so, I maintain, we will discover that their closest analogs in Occidental tradition are not Satanists, but the ranters and the brethren of the free spirit European antinomian movements of later centuries, about which I'll touch on later a little bit. The Yazidi Declaration of Faith, or Sheda Dini, makes clear their refutation of Islam, both Shiite and Sunni. Muslims are called swine and heretics, end quote. Wow, heavy stuff there, eh? All right, and this is a, um, a segue, actually, into some of my own obsessions about how the Gnostic tradition relates to our own times. So I'm going to close with a brief exegesis of my own. Many scholars perceive that there was a subversive, anti-authoritarian strain in medieval Gnosticism. This was especially the thesis of the late Romanian writer and researcher, Ion Petro Culiano, who in 1991 was assassinated on campus at the University of Chicago, where he taught by probable agents of some Romanian neo-fascist formation, such as the Iron Guard. His last and most important book, The Tree of Gnosis, was, I believe, published posthumously, Jacques Le Carrière in The Gnostics, 1989, takes a much darker view, drawing a parallel between Gnosticism and modern nihilism. And the basic idea is that the Gnostics had such a fierce rejection of the material world that they rejected all worldly authority and therefore attracted the oppressed and alienated which is why they had to be crushed, although it is also true that they established their own local authorities and at times had kingdoms under their control. The three most significant Gnostic heresies, so-called, in Europe, all tracing their roots to the earlier Gnosticisms of the Middle East, were the Bogomils in the Balkans, and especially Bosnia, the Paulicians in Italy, and the Cathars, or Albigensians, in France. 
famously crushed in the Albigensian Crusade of the 13th century, but the lesser-known Bogle mills were also crushed in a crusade. And this actually ties in to um, our discussion of the Bosnian Wars in um, last week's podcast. Okay, to uh, go over some of the history, and I have to preface this with the caveat that there is a great deal of contestation about this history, and the arguments have, of course, become very politicized. So I'm just laying out the narrative here as I best understand it, being a mere dabbler, relying on secondary sources, not a professional historian. In the 4th century CE, Common Era, as we all know, the declining Roman Empire was divided in two for reasons of administrative expediency, and the border between the two new empires was drawn right through the Balkans, setting the stage for centuries of future conflict. The two branches of the Roman Empire, of course, based in Rome and Constantinople, respectively, developed into the two great branches of Christianity. So, Croatia, in the west of what, in the 20th century, would become Yugoslavia, became Roman Catholic, while Serbia, to the east, became Eastern Orthodox. And after the Western Empire collapsed, Croatia became an independent kingdom, while Serbia remained under the rule of the Eastern or Byzantine Empire. Bosnia, a remote and mountainous region between the two spheres, was never effectively under the control of either, and developed a heresy with populist and anti-authoritarian overtones, called Bogomilism, Bogomil, meaning beloved of God in the Slavic languages, which the Catholic powers to the West and the Orthodox powers to the East both did their best to exterminate. The medieval kingdom of Croatia disappeared in 1102 CE, when it was absorbed by Catholic Hungary, and in 1244 the Pope sanctioned a crusade against the Bogomils by the Hungarians. And for the next two centuries, the Bosnian kingdom would be fighting for its survival and eventually came under Hungarian rule and the Bogomils faced persecution. In the 14th century, the Byzantine Empire was in rapid decline, besieged by Turkish invasions from the east. The Turkish and Islamic Ottoman Empire established itself on the ruins of the Byzantine Empire and expanded into the Balkans. Following the decisive Battle of Kosovo in 1389, Serbia lost most of its territory to the Ottomans and completely succumbed in 1459. And the next territory to conquer, of course, was Bosnia. The Ottomans apparently succeeded in winning the loyalty of Bosnian peasant Bogomils during their uprisings against Catholic Hungary. In 1463, Bosnia was annexed to the Ottoman Empire, and most of the Bogomils converted to Islam. So the Bogomils disappeared from history, as the saying goes, and basically became the Bosnian Muslims. And the Ottoman administrators favored Bosnia's Muslim Slav majority with status and access to land, those Bosnians who remained Catholic were considered ethnic Croats. Those who remained Orthodox 
identified as Serbs. And while many Bosnian peasants had welcomed the Ottomans as liberators, the Serbs mourned their lost kingdom and were loath to acknowledge Constantinople's new rule, which would last until Bosnia was annexed by Austria in 1908. This, of course, laid the groundwork for World War I, which would be sparked, famously, by the assassination of the Austrian prince by a Serb militant in Sarajevo, the Bosnian capital, and also laid the groundwork for the historical grievances that would lead to ethnic war in the 1940s, and then again in the 1990s, and if we're not careful, maybe yet again in 2023. I certainly hope not, but tensions are certainly rising there. And maybe it isn't a coincidence that the pluralistic, explicitly pro-coexistence and pro-multicultural Muslim leadership of Bosnia that inspired the world when it was under siege in the 1990s ultimately traces its roots to a Gnostic heresy. And in fact, I understand that upon Bosnian independence from Yugoslavia in 1992, a kind of neo-Bogomilism or Bogomil nostalgia emerged as a part of the forging of a new Bosniak identity, the national identity of the Bosnian Muslims. The late American anarchist writer Moray Bookchin, very much a rationalist, by the way, in his The Ecology of Freedom, 1982, his most important book, in my opinion, traces what he calls the West's legacy of freedom, juxtaposed to the legacy of domination, in a lineage from Zoroaster and Mani to the Cathars and medieval Gnostics, to the Protestant Reformation and Enlightenment, perhaps a bit of a leap, but there may be some thread of continuity there, and then to the millennial Christian movements of the English Civil War period and the revolutionary currents that they inspired, including the Levelers, the Diggers, and my personal favorite, the Ranters, and then to the radical mysticism of William Blake, to the American Revolution, the abolitionists, and contemporary progressive and liberatory currents, such as anarchism. And interestingly, Bookchin is today a key influence on the whole Kurdish intellectual ferment around the PKK and their anarchist-informed model of regional autonomy, which brings us full circle. And maybe it isn't as strange as it superficially seems that a Middle Eastern micro-ethnicity the Yazidis, adhering to what seems to us an esoteric and even mystical spiritual tradition, should embrace the militant secularism and feminism of the contemporary Kurdish revolutionary movement. And I should point out, by the way, that uh, (laughs) Bookchin and Peter Lamborn Wilson were rivals in real life, and Bookchin actually took some swipes in print at Peter, or more accurately, at pseudonymous writings widely presumed to have been penned by Peter. I'll say no more. And certainly, Murray Bookchin and Peter Lamborn Wilson represented contrasting tendencies in contemporary anarchism. Bookchin, the rationalist and upholder of what he saw as liberatory currents within the Western tradition, and Peter being of a mystical and ecstaticist bent, 
and an unabashed romantic and orientalist. But I feel honored that I got to know both of them and certainly learned a lot from both of their works. And I hope that in this podcast, I have perhaps pointed the way, at least tentatively, toward a synthesis of their contrasting tendencies. Anyway, heady stuff. Quite the thought-provoking read. Peacock Angel, the esoteric tradition of the Yazidis, by my friend, inspiration, and mentor. Not that I was without my criticisms of him. Peter Lamborn Wilson, hail and farewell. This has been Bill Weinberg on the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where we blog and rant obsessively about such, if you will, esoteric subject matter in a very politically intransigent way. You can support us by becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash countervortex. Become a subscriber just for a buck or two a week to keep um, such gems coming. Join the Counter Vortex, join the Resistance, and rant on you next time.